It is the uh, code of omerta within the uh, cable industry that you don't compete with a uh, an existing system. Hi there, this is Lisa Gonzalez from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. Welcome again to the Community Broadband Bits podcast. Large corporate providers enjoy lack of competition within the current status quo. Unfortunately, those same providers often refuse to build in communities without the potential for large enough profits or where they would encounter competition. What is a local community to do when existing providers see no reason to serve their community? Several weeks ago, we brought you Jim Baller, president and senior principal of the Baller Herbst Law Group. Baller Herbst has worked with local communities for years as they have found ways to provide connectivity to residents, businesses, and government. During episode 57, Jim and Chris discussed some of Jim's experiences with early legal battles as publicly owned networks began to pop up across the country. This time, Jim and Chris continued to explore the history of publicly owned networks. As momentum builds and more communities consider the pros and cons, past experiences can mold future decisions. Here are Jim and Chris with more on the early days of the municipal network movement. Welcome back to another episode of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. Uh, This is Chris Mitchell, and once again, I'm speaking with Jim Baller. Jim, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Chris. I'm happy to be here. Last time when you and I were speaking, we spent a lot of time talking about the early history of the municipal networks, uh, some of the the cable history, your work with uh, Glasgow. And we ended up by talking about the 2004 Nixon v. Missouri decision. Uh, and I think today we're actually going to go back a little bit in time to to explain a little bit of what was happening in those years while that case was working its way through the system. So um, why don't we pick one of the networks that you worked with early on, uh, perhaps the, the first fiber network you worked with, and pick up the story there. Uh, first, Chris, let me try to put into context the um, uh, fiber networks that I began to work with beginning in around 2000, 2001. Uh, up to that time, the uh, uh, great majority of the municipal uh, networks were uh, HFC, uh, hybrid fiber coaxial networks that were similar uh, to the uh, networks that uh, cable systems, uh, private sector cable systems were operating, uh, and also a number of uh, uh, municipal networks did not pro- provide residential service at that time. And so uh, that's the kind of uh, network that existed at the time. Uh, beginning around 2000, a number of uh, very creative, pioneering communities uh, saw the vision of uh, developing fiber to the home networks that would have uh, substantially more capacity and would uh, reduce uh, operating costs and uh, were, as the the phrase, the saying was at the time, uh, future-proof. Among these uh, communities uh, were Bristol, Virginia, and um, uh, Kutztown, Pennsylvania, uh, Grant County, uh, Washington, Chelan County, Washington, Dalton, Georgia was another early one, and um, we worked with most of them, in particular Bristol, uh, Chelan, uh, Cootstown, and Dalton, and um, uh, these networks uh, were uh, very new in concept, and uh, they were uh, pretty much uh, all there was in this uh, 
field of advanced fiber to the home networks, the uh, major uh, phone companies uh, were not doing anything like that uh, at the time. Uh, they began to get into it about three, four years later. Uh, the, the municipal projects encountered the uh, usual opposition from uh, the uh, uh, private sector entities, but they all went forward, and uh, they ended up uh, being the uh, uh, spearheads for what is now a, a very uh, widespread uh, community of uh, public and private entities that believe that uh, fiber networks are uh, the future of the nation and indeed the future of many countries around the world. Let's, let's just jump right into Chelan, uh, in part because when I was speaking with people from Bristol, they noted that they had gone out there to Chelan mm -hmm. when they were thinking about their system. And also, Chelan's in a very interesting place because, you know, most of these other places, they're, they may be in rural areas, but it's a town center and it's a, you know, there's a, an area of density that they serve or that they started to serve first. Whereas Chelan is really quite spread out, and as is Grant, as I understand it, and the public utility districts of Washington State, they're, they cover these much larger areas that they That's have responsibility correct. for. Uh, so, so how did Chelan become one of the first uh, to experiment with this new technology? Counties like uh, Chelan and Grant County uh, had um, revenues from uh, selling. Uh, electricity from uh, their hydro projects on the uh, Great Rivers of Washington uh, that they could uh, use to support the development of uh, uh, broadband uh, networks. Uh, their populations were not getting uh, broadband of any kind, uh, and uh, there was a logical connection of using uh, communication services to improve uh, the uh, provision of electric power and also at the same time to uh, give their residents access uh, to uh, broadband service that they would not otherwise have had. Um, at the time that uh, entities like uh, Chelan and um, uh, Grant County and other PUDs uh, actually began to uh, make plans to provide services over their uh, networks. The state of Washington um, uh, passed legislation that effectively limited the uh, uh, public uh, PUD providers uh, to providing service, if at all, only through wholesale means. And uh, that had a, a negative effect on their ability to uh, serve the public well and also their ability to uh, provide uh, sustainable service. They went ahead in any event, and uh, uh, their uh, communities are uh, much better for those efforts. We saw this later to um, the same effect, although not the same wording, in Utah, uh, that there's this justification by legislators often who are working at the behest of the cable and telephone companies that they should limit the ability of these local government units or local governments, depending on what we're talking about, as though it would somehow lower their risk. When in fact, what we've seen time and time again is that when you decrease the freedom of a local government or public entity to 
pick its own business model, the one that works best for its unique situation and assets, that's when you're creating more risk for them. The problem with this model of restricting uh, public providers to providing wholesale service as distinguished from retail service, there are several problems, but the main one is that um, if you are dealing directly with your own customers, uh, you are responsible for the quality of service, uh, the pricing of service, the way in which the uh, customers uh, are able to respond when they when they have uh, problems and so on and so forth. What the wholesale model essentially does is inject between that relationship between the uh, consumers and the utility a whole layer of middlemen or middle persons or and that uh, layer of retailers uh, has the incentive to uh, gain the same kinds of profits that uh, incumbents have uh, they uh, they push prices. Their interests are not necessarily the same as the network owners uh, because the network owner, uh, if it's a utility in particular, has decades of uh, building a reputation for high-quality customer service and high-quality of service. If the retailers uh, don't meet those standards, the uh, utility still gets blamed for it, but there's not much they can do about it. Um, at, at retailers... Uh, in our experience, have tended to uh, be uh, very conservative about spending money for marketing and for uh, customer service and support, uh, which has a negative effect from the um, perspective of the network owner. And it's a difficult model, especially since there aren't that many uh, high-quality retailers who are uh, available in uh, many of the uh, uh, rural areas where uh, we're talking about the uh, PUDs uh, serving. So bottom line, uh, where municipalities have been able to provide retail service, they uh, tend to have uh, done very well, uh, where they've been forced to operate a, a wholesale uh, operation without being able to serve customers directly uh, they've, uh, uh, they've, in many cases, struggled. That's a difficult model. Bristol, Virginia was thinking about um, what it could do to try and revitalize the economy in southwestern Virginia. When Bristol got going, they wanted to do a wholesale model. Their problem, as far as the model was concerned, was something different. They couldn't get a cable operator to work on their uh, their network as a partner because uh, there were already actually two uh, private sector cable systems serving portions of the city, Comcast and Charter, and it is the uh, code of omerta within the uh, cable industry that you don't compete with a uh, an existing system, and so they couldn't get a cable operator to operate over the network, and they uh, had a what they thought was a deal with a private phone company to operate over the system so that they could focus on um, broadband and uh, providing infrastructure to the cable and phone providers, and that didn't work out either. So Bristol 
was faced with a choice of either abandoning their desire to be a wholesale provider or uh, abandoning the concept of uh, providing a fiber service in their community, and they decided that the only real alternative left to them was to step up and become a retail provider themselves. Right, and we, you and I told that story. Uh, you provided a lot of advice in uh, the writing of a case study that that I did on uh, Bristol, Lafayette, and uh, Chattanooga. I wanted, to, I wanted to just sort of say that the BVU holds claim and, and, and likes to brand itself as the very first uh, municipal triple play network uh, available in the United States. Um, and uh, all of that is uh, is true, although they weren't the first sort of municipal fiber network. Um, and we, we skipped over Kutztown a little bit, which has a little personal history for me. My mom was born there. I visited there a few times. Um, let's talk about Kutztown and, and how they came into um, building a fiber network. You know, they're a small college town in uh, central Pennsylvania. Uh, they have, I believe, a population of only around 5,000, uh, not including the uh, uh, college campus and, uh, and the students there. Uh, but you're right, they did um, uh, put together a fiber-to-the-home network. And, you know, you often hear that um, it's public versus private, uh, and that's not true at all, and it certainly isn't true in Kutztown's case. Uh, we once provided uh, testimony for a, um, a committee of, of uh, Congress on how the Kutztown uh, network operated, and it had, as it turns out, a half a dozen private providers uh, filling out the um, uh, service uh, list uh, on that network. And um, uh, there were providers, for example, providing uh, local phone service, and some were providing long-distance phone service. Uh, Kutztown was providing uh, broadband and cable uh, others were providing uh, security service. And um, so you had uh, this isolated little community in the heart of Pennsylvania out there uh, showing up uh, what everyone else in uh, Pennsylvania was doing. And um, as it turns out, uh, Kutztown uh, was a sore point with um, uh, Verizon, and it led to uh, two or three years of uh, efforts by uh, Verizon to uh, obtain legislation in Pennsylvania to prevent future Kutztowns, and that ultimately resulted in uh, uh, Verizon pushing through the legislation uh, at the end of uh, 2004 that uh, spawned its own history of um, national opposition to barriers to entry, which I think we'll probably get to at some point down the road. You know, when I was looking at uh, some of the history of Kutztown, I found this fascinating fact. I, I don't remember the exact amount of time, but the uh, the governor of uh, Pennsylvania at the time presented Kutztown with an award, recognizing mm-hmm. their local government excellence in uh, this telecommunication investment, you know, building this futuristic network and uh, the same governor turned around a few months later, I think it may have been as many as six or nine months later, and he signed the bill to make sure no one else could ever do that in Pennsylvania. Uh, it was a fairly fascinating 
um, turnaround that really shows the power of a company like Verizon. Yes, it does. And um, uh, that is a very unfortunate experience. I remember the morning after uh, we lost that fight in Pennsylvania, turning to my partners in Washington saying, mark my words, this loss is going to be the equivalent of the sinking of the Lusitania, uh, which ultimately led to America's entry into uh, World War One, and uh, as it turns out, uh, that is in fact what happened. It's a it's a great point to end the show on. And uh, uh, what we'll do is we're going to come back and we'll keep this history moving forward. Okay, let's do it. You can access a wealth of information about the Balor Herbs Law Firm at Balor.com. We have one more future interview with Jim lined up, so be sure to return to hear Jim share some of his rich experiences. Thanks again for listening to the Broadband Bits podcast. If there are issues related to telecommunications that interest you, you we welcome your suggestions for future shows. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org. You can also follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at Community Nets. We released the show on September 10th, 2013. Thank you again to the group Break the Bands for their song titled Escape and licensed using Creative Commons. Thank you for listening. A shout.